you have a Bible, you can open up to 1 Peter. We're in 1 Peter. Go ahead and look underneath you. If you don't have one, grab one of those white and blue ones, and it's all yours. Uh, take it home, keep it, give it to others, that'll be fine. We're going to be in chapter 4 of 1 Peter, so um, you can open up to chapter 4. The, the goal, as I was studying this week, was to do 1 through 11, but really 1 through 6 um, is, is it feels like its own kind of uh, passage unit for, for one sun, Sunday service. So we're just going to do 1 through 6, which will mean, I know this is going to break your hearts, that probably the sermon will be shorter than normal today. I know that you're hoping for a good, solid hour. Um, and, you know, maybe I'll deliver. We'll see. We'll see what happens. But, uh, yeah, it's looking like it, it'll be a little bit shorter. I'm going to pray and then read the text. Um, and then we, we'll be in First Peter 4, as I said. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word that you've given to us. Without it, there is no life. Without it, there is no growth. We know that because of the gospel and the spirit of Christ and your word, all these things are made possible to us. And so I pray that we would um, approach it now with reverence, that we would be thankful that you've given it to us, that you would come now and be in this room and teach us all, including me. Uh, I am desperate for um, your spirit to teach me as well. I pray that as we look at it, there would be some clear applications that we can make for our life, that we'd have a better understanding of suffering, but also a, uh, a deep desire to want to kill sin in our life. We love you, Lord, and, and need you to come now. We pray it's in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 1, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of time, rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. That time is that time that is past suffices for doing what Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that those judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. So the main kind of theme regarding this, this text is suffering. It's talking to Christians. Now, if you remember, we've talked about Peter uh, writing this letter around the year 63 AD, AD 63, whichever way you say it, uh, to a group of people who had experienced suffering. And as they experienced suffering, uh, we know from verse 1, when the suffering came, they dispersed themselves all over the place. They, they were trying to avoid the suffering, as it says uh, in verse 1 of chapter 1, Peter, an apostle of Christ Jesus, to those elect exiles of the dispersion. And so, as he's writing this, as they've been dispersed all over the place, he's writing this letter to Christians, addressing a few things. Um, one, they were Christians and they were all gathered together in one place, figuring out how to live whole, 
holy lives, figuring out how to live a Christ-centered life. And as they're dispersed, they all of a sudden need more guidance, more insight on what Christian holy living looks like. And so even today, he's going to talk a little bit about uh, the fact that you should put off sin and not want to be sinners anymore. He's also addressing, as you would guess, since their government is attacking them and killing them, which we saw a few weeks ago, he's, attack, he's, he's discussing the question, well, do we need, still need to submit to our authorities anymore since they've attacked us? That, you can see that in three, I'm sorry, chapter two, verse 13. If you want to podcast that, you can go back and we, that, that was definitely a, a, a week where I got lots of phone calls and emails and texts regarding that one. Um, and then the next one, the next big idea is most Christians, as they're experiencing suffering, are like, why is this happening? You know, if God really loves us, why are we suffering? I don't understand. And so he's, he's addressing these kind of three big ideas throughout the entire letter. And so today, um, in verses 1 through 6, he's, he's pulling two together. You'll see that the suffering that's happening is also as a result of living holy lives. Now, uh, I do want to talk a little bit about suffering and the fact that it will be inevitable for us who are in Christ Jesus. For, if we're going to be serious about f- fulfilling the Great Commission... The Great Commission given to us in Matthew 28, 18, um, that we need to go make disciples of all nations. If we're going to be serious about that, it, we're going to experience suffering. John 20, 21, as, I, as, the, as the Father has sent Christ, so he sends us. Christ was sent, and in his life, there was a measure of suffering indefinitely. I mean, it was, it was there. And so as he's been sent, so we're being sent. We know that we'll be sent. In 2 Timothy 2, 4, he tells him, I'll read it, but basically he tells him that you're going to endure suffering, and as you're going to endure suffering, you're going to be doing the work of the evangelist. Um, let, let, me, let me read it to you in its entirety in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 5. I'm not sure which one I said, but it's chapter 4, verse 5. It says... As you, always being sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of the evangelist, fulfill your ministry. So we know that as we're fulfilling the work of the evangelist, we're going to also experience suffering. Matthew 24, 14, this gospel of the, of the kingdom must be preached to all the ethne, to all the people groups, and then the end will come. If we're going to truly preach this gospel to all the ethnic groups of the world, there will be, there will be some of the ethnic groups that will receive us in. We've never heard this message. We're so glad you're here. Thanks for coming and telling us about Christ and celebration will ensue. But we also know that as we as Christians go to some ethnic groups all over the world, that will not be the reception. They will persecute us. They will kill us. Um, But we know that we are to fulfill this great commission in Matthew 28. And as we do, to go to reach all the ethnic groups, some of the ethnic groups will reject us and some of the ethnic groups will, will bring violence against us. And Therefore, as Christians, we will suffer. And so we know that suffering is in the path of Christians. And as we discussed last week, um, we are the rare exception here in America. Most time periods for Christianity have experienced suffering. And even today, most Christians besides us in America experience suffering. We're just, the Lord has has chosen to put us in a country in a time period where we don't. Uh, and I mean, there's nothing we can do about that besides pray for those who are, are experiencing suffering and uh, be the kind of believers that don't just find ourselves living in a safe Disneyland environment where we're not ever going to look like the rest of our, our brothers and sisters. But we know that suffering will happen. But in this particular text as well, um, there's, there's, there's a different kind of suffering that's being uh, given to us. 
I'm not trying to minimize the suffering that most people feel for doing the work of the evangelism to reach the nations. But this, this, evangelism, um, this suffering is suffering. Uh, so in this time period, they were, they were, they were not Christians. He calls them Gentiles. And as they were Gentiles, they were, they were with people. And then they became a believer, but they still knew those people. And then any kind of after becoming a Christian association with that, the, the words that they would say to them was maligning them, as it says in the text. And that's the suffering that you're talking about in, in this particular text. So... Um, Let's jump in, and I want to make sure you see everything that's going on. Therefore, verse 1, since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with what? What are we going to arm ourselves with? He's telling us to, to literally arm ourselves with something, with the same way of thinking. And so, we know that we're going to, in the context here, be talking about suffering that's coming to us. And so, what he wants you to do is, prior to the suffering... That any of us might feel as believers, which it's inevitable. All who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will experience persecution. That's in 2 Timothy. We, we know that it's likely going to come to us. And he wants you to arm yourselves with thoughts. So there, there's things that need to happen in your mind before you go. You arm yourselves. Put on the, the helmet, put on the shield, get your sword. There's, there's little pieces of arming yourselves that he wants you to do it but it's all thought related arm yourself with this same way of thinking so the title of the sermon i've called it uh, being armed with thoughts being armed with suffering for thoughts um, being armed for suffering with thoughts so we have four different thoughts that you need to arm yourselves with for the rest of your life as you're going to experience suffering right here in the text that he wants you to know. Now, I know we live in a unique time period, but the Lord may call you to the nations or the climate could change in America. Um, there, or you might be one day giving advice to those who live in other places. But um, these are four thoughts that Peter gave to his fellow friends. Um, and I think that certainly are for us today still very applicable for us. So we're going to arm ourselves with four different thoughts. The first one is actually right above the, where it tells us to arm ourselves with thoughts. Since there Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourself. And I, I think that that's actually the first piece of armor or, or thought armor that we need to have. So the first one is Christ suffered in the flesh right there in verse 1. So the first one is this. Remember that Christ also suffered. If, if we are experiencing suffering, most likely we'll all ask the question, why is this happening? We will, why God is this happening? And we need to remember that we are servants of our master and our master also suffered. He's pointing to Christ and saying, Christians, um, this, this master of ours also experienced suffering and so you should not wonder in your head, is this something odd that's happening to me? If Jesus suffered, certainly there will be times when you will suffer. There's a book called 100 Prison Meditations that Richard Wormbrand wrote after he experienced 14 years of prison in Romania. Um, he wrote a little phrase or a little sentence or two after he got out and many of the books he wrote. He said, I have accepted this proposal. Christians are meant to have the same vocation as their king, that of cross bearers. It is this conscience of a high calling and partnership with Jesus that brings gladness and tribulation, which makes Christians enter prisons for their faith with the joy of a bridegroom entering 
the bridal room. So you can, you can, with all your mind, picture the joy of a bridegroom entering the bridal room. And he's saying with that same, and this is a man who experienced 14 years in prison, with that same joy, Christians can also enter into prisons for their faith, enter into sufferings for their king with the same type of joy. I've accepted this proposal. Christians are meant to have the same vocation as their king. And, and that vocation is one of suffer. Now, our sufferings are not the same as his sufferings. So his sufferings were for the atonement. His sufferings, because he's the perfect sacrifice, were so that we could receive eternal life, be the payment for sin. Our sufferings are, are not a payment. But our sufferings are still, in, in the same vein as Christ, um, going to be painful, going to be terrible, going to be things that people, whenever we're experiencing, don't necessarily understand why we would, we would say, yes, we're willing to endure this. But as we're going in, perhaps the Lord would, uh, would sovereignly cause a, a shift change in our, in our country. And, and it does ever happen to us. When we're going through it, if there's ever time or you know somebody that is, a, a good piece of encouragement or something to remember in your head is this. Christ suffered in the flesh. And he is our king. And if that's the case, we should not ask ourselves why we're experiencing something so strange if it happened to Christ. So that's the, first, that's the first piece of armor or the first thought that we fight with whenever we're going into suffering. Now, the next one, uh, as we keep going, that, that one in my mind makes total logical sense. And as we're gonna go, uh, some of these are <clears throat> in my mind like, okay, Peter, what are you doing here? I wanna understand. This is what he says. So therefore, since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. If Christ suffered, then I, I, I should be willing to suffer. And then he goes in here. For, th- this is not where I would go, but this is where Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, goes. He goes to, if you're going to suffer, you need to be willing to live a sinless life. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. And so, as he's talking about Christ, he's also applying this to us. So as to live the rest of time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God, but for the will of God. So those who are believers in Christ, you should now live, as it says in verse two, so as to live for the rest of time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. So here's the second thing I want us to arm our minds with when it comes to suffering. When we suffer, when we enter into a period of suffering, the Lord wants for things to happen in our mind, not just as we're going through it to really hope that it ends, of course, but he also wants sanctification to happen. So while suffering can sanctify you, inside of suffering, he also wants you to be sanctified. He wants you to say, inside of this suffering, I don't want to be a sinner. I want to kill sin that would be present in my life even if I'm not going through the suffering. But even though that I'm in it, in either period, these are both times for sanctification. Here's the second thing. When we suffer, we must, in our mind, say we're we're desiring a clean break with sin. A clean break with sin. We have ceased from sin. You can even see in verse 3 the time that is past, that was in the past, suffices for doing. So whenever you were a non-Christian, that time 
all that sinning that you did, that was a sufficient time. You can say, all right, sinning's over. Now it's time to move forward. Not going to be a sinner anymore. So we ceased from sinning. So in, in the time of suffering, we say, I'm choosing suffering over sin. Just like you would say, I'm choosing anything over sin. Here he's telling us, in the midst of suffering, you use that time by the power of the Spirit to say, now I am going to be sanctified. I'm going to choose to use this time as a time to see sin be killed in my life. Or as he says in verse 2, I'm no longer going to live for, the, for, for human passions, but now for the will of God. But now for the will of God. You choose suffering because if you don't, you will choose sin. If you do, you'll prove that your bondage to sin has been broken when you choose to say, no longer do I want to sin anymore. We have to remain convinced that the time of sinning is in the past. There's a sufficient amount that has taken place in my life and I don't want that to happen anymore. Grudem says it this way. Why should Peter's readers, it's always cracks me up when he does that. Peter's readers not live by following sinful human passions. Why should the... the the people that Peter's writing to not live by following sinful human passions because they have done enough living that in the time that was in the past, enough sinful living from the time that was in the past, Peter does not just encourage them to let that time be in the past. I'm sorry, let me read that again. Peter does not just encourage them to let the time that is past be sufficient experience of sin. He tells them bluntly that their past experience of sin is sufficient. You can see that where it says in verse 3, the time that passed suffices. So there's enough sufficient sin in your life, whether you came to know Christ at 8 or whether you are 8 right now, or you came to know Christ at 70 and you are 70 right now. Whatever that time of past, that's enough. It's over. And then he says this. They should not want to live any longer the kind of life which was given to the following sinful human desires. To the Christian who wonders whether ever in the future he or she might indulge in one more unrestrained time of sin. One more time of doing what like the Gentiles do. Peter's answer is clear. That time is past. It's sufficient. It's enough of the living of the way indeed. Indeed, those that live that day will one day have to give an account to God. So, for those that are believers now, for those that have come to know Christ, these things that they're doing, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry, those particular things are in the past. And now, as we're going into suffering, we say, as it says in verse 1, whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So suffering, in a lot of ways, is the impetus or a catalyst for God to deal with us even about our sin. For us to make up our mind and say, no more. No more. It's enough. It's, it's sufficient in the past. I'm going to choose to make a clean break from sin. Now, we need to, we need to be careful here because I'm not calling for what's known as perfectionism. I'm not saying that we'll all one day be perfect in this life. However, I am saying, and we've seen over and over in this text, that God has given us an ability to say, in Christ, I can choose to say no to sin. Really choose to say no and it not dominate my life. Really say when that temptation comes, no. You don't have any control over me. He really does want us to... 
an ever-creasing trajectory to become more and more Christ-like to where one day when we get into heaven, we will be like Christ. Let me read one, one other text as, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians. In, in a very similar style list, he, he, he makes a list and then he, he says this, uh, just notice the, the verb tenses with me. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? This is 1 Corinthians 6, starting at verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither sexually immoral, nor idolatrous, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So he has this big list of people who will not go. And then he's, he's talking to Christians. And he says this. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our Lord God. So anything in this list I just, I just read or anything in the first Peter list I just read, what we need to hear is this. If any of those terms describe the sin that you might presently be participating in as a believer in Christ, what you need to hear is such were some of you. That is not you now. You do not need to be in that anymore. Christ is saying, clean break from that now. And in the midst of suffering, you can maybe have more resolve because all of a sudden you, you know how much you really need Christ to be able to say, yes, Jesus, I want this suffering to end, but also I have the resolve, I have the, the ability to understand, wow, I'm entrenched in sin. And I'm going to say, I will not live for the passions of humanity anymore, but now strictly for the will of God. I'm not saying you'll achieve perfection, but you certainly can have a massive launching pad towards holiness and sanctification. This means that as Christians, when we, this, this arming ourselves with our thought, this thought means that we accept fully now the new status of new creation, of kinekatesis, as it says in 2 Corinthians, that's been given to us. We fully accept that new status. I am a new creation. The old man has passed. God has given me a completely new status. And so we arm ourselves with the thought that any amount of past sinning is enough. It's enough. I don't have to do any more to feel like I've got it all out of my system. It's enough. What I've done, as it says, it suffices. It's over. It's sufficient. If you sinned a little before you converted, then it's enough now. If you sinned a lot before you were converted, it's enough. There's no need to do any more. So, that's the second thought, which is not where most of our minds would go. But Peter, in his grace wants you to see that suffering also is a useful tool by God to help you see there is still a fight for holiness that is absolutely necessary you need to be doing. And then he tells us the cost. So you used to have this crew that you ran with where you were sinning. What's the cost where you go back to them afterwards and you say, we used to participate in that list of sin. I'm a Christ follower now and I'm not gonna do it anymore. I would love it if you would come to know Christ with me. What's the cost when that happens? Generally, they don't say, oh, that sounds great, man. That's awesome for you. That's awesome. 
That's not, that's not their reaction. Verse 4 tells us the, the cost. So we see the time has passed for doing what Gentiles want to do, living in sexuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join. The, 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 the Greek there is run with them in the same flood of debauchery. So whenever you say, I'm not going to run with you anymore in the way that you live your life. I'm not, I'm not going to run in your circles anymore. With respect to this, they're surprised when you don't continue to run with them in their flood of debauchery. And what do they do? Here's the cost. And they malign you. They malign you. This is uh, slander you. This is speaking ill of you. They, they speak ill of you because you don't want to join them anymore. They malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. So when you don't join them and they continue down this path and they continually, I mean, let's say the maligning or the slandering or the, the persecution they, they start giving you is just, it's overbearing. It's, 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 too, it's so much and you want it to end and you, you maybe want to strike back. Maybe you want to malign them back. You want to do something back. In that, that little, that little phrase there that Peter puts in, because you know that it's got to be present in the minds of the Christian in verse 5, the Christian would eventually, I mean, I think we all would say, continual maligning, continual maligning, why are you slant? Eventually you want to say, you know what? It's time for me to, to give them a piece of my mind. It's time for me to strike back just once. It's time for me to go over there and let them understand, either physically or, or with words, how much I don't appreciate this. Verse 5, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. So the cost is that they're going to malign you. Likely, I mean, Peter's train of thought is, and you're going to want to strike back. However, he, he keeps us from that thought with verse 5. Verse 5 is, you, you don't need to strike back. There's nothing in you that needs to strike back. You can totally resolve to say, whatever you want, Lord, and and I trust you, I trust you here. I know that you're going to do way more justice to them one day than I am. So instead of striking back, I'm going to continue to love them. As painful as that sounds, as difficult as that sounds for all of us, I'm going to choose to love them. It's even in, it's even in the uh, verse 8. Now, I'm not going down to verse 8. Or, or exegeting it, if you will. But it says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. I mean, so we, we know that if I am being sinned against, the way that I can absorb that and not want to strike back is by loving them. And so when we say covering, it's not like, ah, oh, that didn't happen. It's just absorbing it and saying, as you continually choose to sin against me, I'm going to love you. And as I... Let my mind love you. My mind chooses to say in my head and heart, I'm willing for you to sin against me because love is so big in my heart for you that I, I, I'm going to love you anyway. So whatever you do, I want the love to be so big that I'm going to absorb it and forgive you so that you'll come to know Christ or trust God. Which brings me into my, last, my, my third one, I should say. In verse 4 and 5, with respect when it says they're surprised, I, I, I'm not sure... 
why they're surprised. Um, but I will say this, just as an uh, application question. <clears throat> Perhaps you still hang out with, with your old crew here and there, which if you're a believer in Christ and you're strong enough to, I would encourage you to hang out with your old crew. When I say old crew, I mean maybe the people that you used to sin with. Um, or maybe you just are around unbelievers. It says they're surprised when you don't, don't join. I, I'm not sure why they're surprised. You would think that they would know. Um, but what they're surprised at is the lack of participation in the sin and the behavior which looks like it's pleasing to Christ. That's what they're surprised at. So I, I will ask this one little application question. When you're around unbelievers, are they ever surprised at your holiness? It should be surprising, the holy, question, the holy decisions we choose to make. It should be surprising. Don't feel compelled to make a list here. I think that we all can make our own lists because we have the Holy Spirit in our heart guiding us showing us what behavior is Christ-like and what behavior is not. But when we're around unbelievers, there should be, at some times, a level of surprise that you would choose to make certain decisions and not. I got so many things in my head, but I'm not gonna say them. <laughs> but are, are, they, are they surprised at my Christ-like behavior? If they're not ever surprised at my Christ-like behavior, then perhaps I'm not Christ-like and I act just like them. But back to the point. What am I gonna, what's the thought I'm going to arm myself with whenever they're maligning me and all I want to do is Luke Keekly and tackle them, right? I just want to destroy them. Go Panthers. Um, is this. Number three, we remember that God is the giver of justice. We remember that God's the giver of justice. And I, I've, I've touched on this the past couple weeks. Justice is going to be given them in one of two ways. If they remain an unbeliever the rest of their life, when they die, we can trust, as it says in verse 5, that they will have to give an account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. Like, the, the justice they will receive from God will be way more just than you could ever give and way worse than you could ever give. So why do you feel compelled to do anything? You shouldn't. You don't need to ever try to give out justice because God's going to do it better than you. That's the first way. The second way that God's going to give out justice is if they do come to know Christ, then he's actually poured out all of his justice on Jesus for them. And that atonement is completely sufficient. And so it covers them. And so you can trust that as well. So arm yourself with the thought when people sin against you. The Lord's either going to give them justice of one of two ways. He's either already given it to Christ and they're forgiven. Or in the end, verse, as verse 5 says... They will have to give an account to him who's ready to judge. That's the positive way, I think, for Christians to try to go towards this verse that God provides ultimate justice, therefore we don't need to. But let me take a small little caveat. Um, this is a little, my evangelist sidestep that I like to try to do each, each time. There's a sad way to hear this verse. There's a sad way to hear this verse. It's, and I think it's good practice for Christians to hear things like this and let it do its work that, it's, that it should. Think about this. Those who are in Christ, they will have to give an account to him 
those who are not in Christ, I should say, they will have to give an account to him. That's a sad way to, for those, if if they're maligning you, it gives those people joy. I love you, but one day you can give an account to Jesus, and that makes me feel better. But there's also a sad way to think about it. For those that really love people, for those that have the heart of an evangelist, for those that it does devastate you that people go to hell. Sinners will stand before a holy God and be judged. That's just a very sad prospect. When's the last time? When's the last time you wept for the lost? I mean, truly, like, you can't believe it. This is sad. I was listening to a song. This was back whenever I was, uh, before I even started church. It was like, I don't know, 11 p.m. maybe at night. And I was listening to this song, a uh, Christian song. And he was saying that there are people that are born who will, will end up always just being bridesmaids, but they'll never be the bride. In other words, there are people that are, that are born that will always be lost, but they'll never ever get to be a part of the church. They'll just always be lost. And it kind of hit me once, like, oh, that's just so sad. They'll never come to know Christ. And all the weight of it kind of hit me at once, right? So I'm just reading my Bible and I'm listening to that song and I, I turned it off. I'm just sitting in my living room by myself 11 o'clock at night and I'm just bawling, just crying. And Christy walks downstairs and she sees her husband just sitting on the couch by himself, just bawling. And so it's a very, you know, reassuring time for me as a man where she looks at me and she's like, what are you crying about? You're like, the TV's not on. You're just sitting here. What are you crying about? I'm trying to explain. I'm all snotty. You're never going to be bridesmaids. They're always just going to be bridesmaids. She's like, what? what are you talking about? And I'm like, ah. I mean, like, people are not going to come to know Christ. And she's like, are you okay? And I'm like, ah, I'm trying to explain it and it's bad. Like, I'm all embarrassed now, you know. But my point is this. I mean, have, has there been these times where the weight of it all kind of hits you and you have a wholehearted enter into their life deep, like, I can't believe that there's people that their lostness and it, and it just hits me. They will have to give an account to him. The weight of that hits me so hard and I just, I'm so troubled that one day breathing people that we know and rub shoulders with that I care and love about are gonna stand before the holiest of gods one day, just like you and I. And I have to give an account for their stiff neck that they have maintained towards Christ for their entire life. It should break our hearts. It should break our hearts. I, I don't want to date myself in age, but at one point growing up in my circles that I grew up in, when you say one day they're going to have to give an account, it was usually met with amens. That's the kind of environment I grew up in. It shouldn't be met with amens. It should be met with tears. It should grieve us when we walk through our city, when we look around this city and the people that we know. Let's not walk around and miss the fact that there are thousands of lost people in our city. Thousands. Let's remember that they're going to have to give an account one day to him. 
and with every breath we have, with all this short little bit of time, this is your shot for evangelism. There is no leading people to Christ in heaven. This is your shot. Let's see how many people we can see come to know Christ. <clears throat> and I think that if we do have periods where of grief for the lost, where we allow our hearts and minds to think about the fact that they'll give an account, and we do weep for the lost, we do care that it'll change the way we interact with people, it'll change the way we meet people, just meeting them will think differently. It'll change the way we interact with them. It'll change the way we talk with them. It'll change the things that we talk with them about. And I promise you it'll change the way you pray for them. I promise you. That's not what I don't think Peter was talking about, but I still thought it was a good application. We're off that caveat and back into the text, the main point here. So that was the third one. Into the fourth one. It says, one day they'll have to give an account to who is ready to judge the living and the dead. And then it says, for, this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh, the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Now, this is, this is a hard to understand verse. Uh, there's some debate in the commentaries. Uh, I think... As I said last week, the, the best way to understand hard texts like the Noah text in the previous ver, uh, chapter 3 is to look at the easier to understand texts and let the easier to understand texts help you interpret the harder to understand texts. So for this reason, this, for this reason why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, I don't think it means that the gospel is being preached to dead people to give them a second shot. So Peter's talking about people who are dead in his current experience, but at one point they were alive and the gospel was preached to them when they were alive. They didn't come to know Christ and now they're dead. So he's kind of talking about them like, hey, they're dead right now, but at one point the gospel was preached to them. I think that's the, the best way to try to understand the verse. And it says, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh, so they have, I mean, especially since we're coming off the heels of verse five, they're gonna have to give an account. So they were judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. And when they're judged, if they're not a follower of Christ, then they will receive judgment. But if they are, then they receive life. They've been given life. So the fourth piece of armor then, as we're looking at verse six, and I'm gonna explain it, is this. We remain, I mean, we remember our ultimate suffering has been done for us by Christ and we now live. So in the text, the reminder, the kind of the, the conclusion, and they might live in the spirit is, after all that happens, if you're in Christ, then you get life. You get life. So any level of suffering that you're experiencing right now, you can go through it because the ultimate piece of suffering has already happened by Christ, and because he did that, you get life. So as you're going through any level of suffering, you remember I'll never suffer like he suffered. Waves and waves and waves of the wrath of God the Father on him until it actually killed him. But that produced life for me. So as I'm going through this piece of suffering, I can always remember that the ultimate suffering is already done for me by Christ. And that gave me life. So in the midst of this suffering, I really actually have life. Even if they kill me physically, I always have life spiritually. And I arm myself with that, that thought. And I can see through anything. I can go through anything. 
And so, I think the best way then to, to, applic- to apply this in our day-to-day is this. Um, my, my pastor in seminary, and I, I don't remember, I don't have any idea what he was preaching on. I just remember he, he stood up one sermon and, and, and presented this, and it's, it's never, never left my mind. He just looks right at it and goes, what day are you going to live for? You're going to live for this day or that day. You've got, you've got a choice. You're either going to live for one or two days, this day or that day. And I think that that's what this verse leads us to. Which day? Those who will give an account. That means us. Which day are you going to live for? If I live for this day, that means indulging in sinful desires. It means doing what I want to right now, when I want to, and how I want to, to serve my selfish, sinful desires if I live this day or that day. I I can't live for both. But if I live for that day, it means living for Jesus. It means fighting temptation. It means telling my sinful desires, no, I've ceased from sin. I'm making a clean break, and I don't want to live for human passions. But now for the will of God, it says no to that, and I'm going to live for a greater day. It means living for the glory of God on that great day of his return. Or as it says in verse 7, the end of all things. Peter and these, these first century Christians lived their life with the absolute, resolute expectation that Jesus was literally going to come back at any moment. And therefore, if we lived our life that way, like if you truly, honestly believed, literally, Jesus might come back before the Panthers even win their first Super Bowl. Then we're going to probably live a little bit more holy. If Jesus is coming to see us today, we think in our head. I mean, it's the same... People are coming over to our house. We need to get our junk together and make it look like we actually live clean, right? If Jesus is coming back today, I need to get my junk together and actually make it look like I live clean. It's the same mentality. If Jesus is really coming back today, then a whole lot of things need to change in my life. And I can actually really say, cease from sin, break from sin, no longer live for passions, but for the will of God. Now, you don't just do it because Jesus is coming back. You do it because you love Jesus. It's not just some kind of works-based thing. But which day are you going to live for? You can't live for both. You're going to live for this day or for that. And if you're experiencing suffering, in the midst of any kind of suffering, you say, I'm going to live for that day and I can go through anything. Because ultimate suffering has already been done for me by Christ. As Jordan comes out, I'm going to conclude this way. I want to to push us down to uh, the end of verse 11. And in this little section, Peter ends with a doxology. It's just a a praise. And I want to end with this praise and let it be the way we conclude and and take us into a time of worship. At Remedy, we do one song in the beginning and then a sermon, and then we respond with a few songs, revelation, response, response. God reveals himself through his word and we respond with a few songs afterwards because we believe when the word has been revealed to us, the word capital W has been revealed to us, we're now ready to respond. And so I want to read this doxology to you and let it be the thing that drives us into a time of response where perhaps all of you can determine in your head if these are the things that are true. I mean, if if I want to be armed with thoughts, then there's things I need to make sure I'm thinking about. I need to remember that my king suffered and no servant is greater than his master. And so I can go through suffering. I can also say suffering reminds me that holiness is absolutely necessary and I'm going to do it. Holiness reminds me that I don't have to strike back when they malign me, 
because when suffering happens, Jesus will one day force everyone to give an account. And so he will give out ultimate justice. And lastly, suffering reminds me, which day am I going to live for? I'm going to live for that day. I'm not going to live for myself. I'm going to live for Jesus. And I can remember that the ultimate suffering has already been done for Christ. So let's read this doxology. The end of verse 11 says, By the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Christ Jesus. In everything. And for us today, that means any level of suffering you, you experience. It means in any level of sin killing you are striving for. That God would be glorified through it all. The ultimate end of all things is that God would be glorified. So in the middle of my suffering, in the middle of my sin killing, I do it for the glory of God. I stand and I sing in church for the glory of God. That in everything, God may be glorified through Christ Jesus. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word. I pray that all of us, as we've been armed with your word, and you've given us your text here to show us how you want us to live. Lord, I, I don't know if any of us will ever experience the, time, the kind of suffering described in the first century or even the kind of suffering that Christians experience outside of the United States. More than likely, we'll experience the kind of suffering where we're maligned by unbelievers, where we don't want to rejoin them in their flood of debauchery, as it says. Words will be mostly the experience we have regarding suffering, not physical suffering. But nonetheless, you've called us to love them. You've called us to care for them. If they have anything to say against us, you've called us to be like you. I pray for my friends here that yet another sermon on the push towards holiness in 1 Peter lands on them in a way that gives them the resolve to say, it's time to make a clean break from sin. No more will I be tempted. I will no longer live for the passions or desires of my flesh, but now for the will of God only. Be with us now as we worship, and I pray that in this we would live for your glory. We would sing out to you for your glory, and we would exit and live living lives of worship for your glory. I pray it's in Jesus' name.